I'm not sure why I keep scheduling myself on the Sunday mornings after that stupid time change. You'd think I'd learn one of these years, but I figured if I'm going to preach on this morning, I better get you involved and interacted right away in this lesson. So I'm going to ask, does anybody know what the name of this device is? You know, yeah, well, Newton's Cradle. Excellent. Boy, he's on top of his game. Now, does anybody know why it has that name? Newton's Cradle. Bill? Man, not only does he know exactly why, but he actually also ups, spelled out for us what, what Newton's third law is. And it's, sometimes that's a misnomer, Newton's third law, like he invented it. God created it as a natural part of this amazing creation. It wasn't until the end of the 1800s that Sir Isaac Newton actually discovered it and put it into words uh, to describe for us something that is a natural part of our world. So let's test the theory. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if I pull one ball back, what's going to happen? Okay, pretty good. So if I pull two balls back, what should the equal and opposite reaction be? So far, so good. And if I do three, eh, it works. Newton wasn't stupid after all, huh? All right, let me move this out of the way so I don't knock it down, which I'm sure will be the reaction to my wandering around up here. Um, I, I jumped ahead to a slide, but it's an interesting part that God has put into our creation, and it's actually something that we deal with on a daily basis, although I, I think we either take it for granted or we just don't think in the scientific terms. Without this third law that Newton discovered and God created, we wouldn't have the ability to fly or to propel ourselves in water or your kids to play out on the trampoline in the back. It's at work in just about every part of our lives. But what most of us may overlook is that this is not only a natural part of God's creation when it comes to the laws of motion, but it's actually part of God's creation when it comes to, dare I call it, the spiritual laws of motion. And you see how it plays out. And that's the way God designed it. If Adam would choose to rebel against God, if he would choose to sin, the reaction to that would be death. It, it, it's just natural. That's how it was designed. And if God, in his great grace and mercy, should propel the action of promising a rescuer to Adam and Eve, the reaction to that is that it restores life into God's creation. It's a beautiful part of the design that not only works out in a physical sense, but also a spiritual sense. And that's what we're going to be wrestling through this morning. And it's this one verse. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We have equal but opposite actions that also bring about equal and opposite reactions. And that's what these two roadblock signs are. And basically that's what the lesson is this morning. Not only are we going to look at the simple truth of God's love at work in our daily lives, but then there's these two reactions to it. And we have to dismantle that. So not only is the message applied readily to our daily life, but that's so we can live in the way in which God designed us to live, this reactionary way to the amazing creation of God. Okay, last week, Pastor Abrahamson introduced to us our series as well as the book of Romans, that every Sunday we're going to be taking a study through something Paul wrote to that early Christian church. Part of that was not only developing the beginning to the theme of the series, but it was to tell us a little bit about the Roman congregation. 
And that immediately leads us into this first roadblock, or at least a better understanding on our part, what this is all about. One of the things that Pastor Abrahamson spent a good deal of time doing and did it quite well was to focus on the fact that by the time of Jesus, and of course by the time Paul writes this, the Jewish people were very focused on the law. And he took us through the various forms of law. This is just a simple chart of this. One of the things that really seemed to dominate the life of the Jewish people were the ceremonial laws. Uh, how they focused so much on the worship practices that God had given the Old Testament people, how those actually had come to an end, and yet many people didn't want to let them go. In fact, many of the experts in the law and the teachers of the law added laws to them in order to raise the bar, if you will. He also explained that the moral law, what was originally written on man's heart, ultimately written on those two stone tablets, is the only one of these three laws that is still in effect and in place today. Unfortunately, there's a terrible misunderstanding how this was meant to be applied and how even in the life of the Jewish people, it was, if you will, overemphasized. Somehow they believed that that was still in effect or an effective way, if you will, to have a relationship with God. That is shown to us in our gospel lesson. Not only did this expert in the law feel it was well within his rights to question and challenge Jesus and his claim of Messiah, because what Jesus was proposing was an entirely different concept of Messiah that this expert in the law held in his own mind, but when Jesus calls him out in regard to his misunderstanding, there's this phrase, but he wanted to justify himself. When it came to his relationship with God, he wanted to focus on the law. And so he asked that snotty question, and who is my neighbor? To which Christ responds with the parable of the good Samaritan. Remember that the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans. They were enemies. It's like the Vikings and the Packer fans. They just don't get along, okay? That's how it was with the Samaritans and the Jewish people. And in Jesus, in his parable, emphasized quite literally everybody is your neighbor. And that man is left reeling with the question, do I love my fellow man the way that the law dictates that I was created to and should love them? And of course, in his own mind, he would have had to have answered, especially when it comes to the Samaritans, nuh-uh, no way. One of the things that Pastor Abramson told us about the Roman congregation is it's kind of a 50-50 mix. It was about half Jewish, so this was their culture. These things had been ingrained in them, these misunderstandings, these misapplications. But you should also understand that the other half of the congregation, the Gentile half, also was very focused on the law. I think sometimes we overlook that. Any non-Jew born into the empire at that time was legally and automatically considered a Roman citizen, which had certain rights to it. But it also had certain responsibilities, which meant you pledged allegiance to Roman law and to Caesar himself. That's the way you grew up. Those were the rules that you followed. We find this interesting and clever use of the civil laws, which the Gentile world was far more focused on, by the Apostle Paul after he was converted and brought to the Christian faith. You may or may not recall, but let me quickly summarize. At this point, Paul had been falsely accused in Jerusalem, arrested, carried off, put in prison, and he was now in Caesarea Philippi standing trial before uh, a Roman governor. And when he recognized he was not going to get a fair trial within the lands of Israel because of their intense hatred against him, he simply appealed to Caesar. At that point, everything had to stop. All legal proceedings, they could do nothing more. 
Because of this appealing to Caesar, it meant automatically he would take, be taken to the highest court in the land, in the empire, and they had to honor that. Now, Paul wasn't so caught up in the law, even though he was a lawyer. Maybe I should say a recovering lawyer because now he's an apostle. But he knew perfectly how to use the Gentiles' love and devotion to the law against them in order to get what he hoped would be a fair trial. So, if we want to talk about the Roman congregation as accurately as possible, we can't just point to the Jewish half of it and go, oh, they were so caught up in the law. We also have to look to the Gentile half and say they were too. That's the problem. That's this roadblock, this human desire to fulfill the law. Now, one of the things that Pastor Abrahamson reminded us of, and I, I hope we remember it, the law is not the problem. God designed the law perfectly. In fact, it's good to have laws to govern society and lands and a nation. Without it, there would be chaos. The law is not the problem. And originally, man was created in such a way where that law was the means of maintaining a relationship with the Creator. At that time, before sin became a part of this world, it was possible for man to be perfect because that's how he was created. Hardwired within each of us is this deep desire to be what God created us to be, to be law keepers. The problem, though, is not with the law. It is with sin and what it's done to God's creation and now this inability that we have to in any way, shape, or form do what we were created to do or simply put, to follow God's law. Now, this is the backdrop to what Paul now wants to teach to the Roman people because remember, both halves are having a problem with this. He takes us back, and this was part of the connection between the epistle and the Old Testament lesson to the example of that of Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Now, immediately, the Jewish half of the congregation would have clearly understood this, but the Gentile half, understanding their love for the law, would have also gotten this because this deals with natural law. And it has to do with the fact that God, in His grace, came to this man Abraham and made him a, a very serious promise. I'm going to make you the father of not just one, but of many. And to notch that up, I'm going to make you the first in line of my promise, of keeping my promise of Messiah. Now this goes against natural law, because Abraham was an old man, and as Paul writes in the book of Romans, he really shouldn't have been able to father any children. And then you put on top of that the fact that his wife was not only an older woman, but that she was physically incapable of bearing children. God in his grace and mercy makes a promise and then keeps it that he would give to Abraham and Sarah a child. And ultimately that child was Isaac. Now that's the mercy side of it. That's the action. God in His grace coming to sinful man and saying, I'm going to do this for you. I'm even going to go against my own natural law and give you a gift that otherwise would be impossible. The reaction to that was the fact that Abraham believed God would and could do this. You see the principle that Abraham is being used as an illustration for is that while all of this depends on God, the only way it has any effect or benefit in our lives is if we actually take God at His word and believe Him. Because the old system of being able to keep the law is broken. What God has offered to us is a different action, that of love and of mercy. So Paul takes this principle that he develops through Abraham and now applies it to the Romans and to us. He says, look at the love of God in action. God the Father, because He handed over His Son, Jesus Christ, 
as the only way to compensate for how everything was originally created, perfect and demanding righteousness. And the way he phrases this actually is a summary of the entire promise, plan, and fulfillment of salvation, starting with that day in the garden when God spoke to Adam and Eve and said, I will send you a rescuer, all the way down to when Judas handed Jesus over, which set into motion the events that led to the cross. Paul now presents to these law lovers, this is the only means whereby you can be rescued from the fact that you can no longer keep God's law perfectly. But the only way it has any effect or benefit in your lives is if you actually believe it. Salvation is completely and totally dependent upon this love of God, which he wants to show to the entire world. But the only way the world can take advantage of it is if they actually believe what God has said and what God has done. Now, you and I know this. This is our faith. We've been taught this. We review this. We celebrate this. But we have a problem. And that's this first roadblock. To illustrate what I'm trying to teach, I would invite you either later today or sometime this week, go to your computer and Google this phrase, I am a good person. I did that as I was preparing. And you will be surprised about some of the things that come in. This is the one that caught my eye. At the end of the day, I'm a good person. I'm not perfect by any means, but my intentions are good. My heart is pure. And I love hard with everything I've got. It sounds fantastic. Whoever wrote that must be a really good person. The problem with God's law is that it doesn't demand good. It demands perfect. Meet Mr. Nice Guy. You think you're nice? This guy is really nice. Well, I try to do what's right. He's so nice that if good people get to heaven, he'll be the first in line. Ah, shucks. So, Mr. Nice Guy, have you kept the Ten Commandments? Pretty much. Do you mind if we take a look at them and maybe see how nice you really are? Uh, okay. Great. Here's one. You shall not lie. Mr. Nice Guy, have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah. Who hasn't? What do you call somebody who tells lies? Well, a liar. All right. How about another commandment? You shall not steal. Have you ever stolen anything, even once? Nope. But you just told me you're a liar. Well, I, I did steal some candy once when I was a kid. And what do you call someone who steals? A thief. All right, let's try another one. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, that's easy. I'd never cheat on my wife. Hi, handsome. Oh, baby! <clears throat> Jesus said, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Oh, uh, right. One more. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Have you ever used God's name to curse? Oh, my! That, Mr. Nice Guy, is called blasphemy. God gave you life and breath and everything you have, and you've dragged his name through the dirt. So, by your own admission, you're a liar, a thief, a blasphemer, and an adulterer at heart. And that's just for the Ten Commandments. Okay, okay, so I'm not perfect. Well, actually, it's worse than that. 
Suppose we could put a chip in your brain that would record all your private thoughts for an entire week and then play those thoughts on a giant movie screen for all your friends and family to see. That would be embarrassing. Yeah, I know. The Bible says God knows everything, even the secret thoughts of your heart. Well, compared to some people, I'm a saint. Yeah, that's true. But the standard is God's law, not other people. Besides, even if you sin just five times a day in one year, that's 1,825 sins. And if you live to be 70 years old, you'll have broken God's law over 127,000 times. But God will forgive me, right? Well, let's try that in court. Hey, look, I know I keep breaking the law, but hey, catch up. Well, you know, just let it slide. Only a corrupt judge would buy that. A good judge would say, Justice demands that you pay for your crimes. God's not a corrupt judge. He's a holy, righteous judge. He hates sin. <sighs> well, then how can anybody get to heaven? There's only one way. God loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life. He never sinned, not even once. Then, Jesus offered to take the punishment for guilty sinners. He was whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross and died so that justice would be served and sinners could go free. I wish I only sinned five times a day. You know, when you put it like that, it, it, it's pretty easy. It, it's pretty straightforward. In fact, Paul lays that same basic message out for the Roman people. And you wonder, well, okay, why does he have to keep saying it again and again and again? Why do we keep telling ourselves this over and over, week after week? That leads us into a discussion of the second roadblock. The action is God's love, and there's always going to be an evil reaction to that. In fact, we get sandwiched between this gift of faith God has given us and the very human side of us, which doesn't always trust not only what God has said, but what God has done. Done. And Paul wants to deal with that roadblock and that reality too. And so one of the things that Paul has to do for the people is remind them that you can't go by the evidence of what's happening in your lives. You have to go by the proof of what God has done with your faith. I'm sure you have these reactions and you are led to question and maybe wonder about this promise and this love of God. It happens when you're sitting in your doctor's office and this diagnosis that you've been praying that you would never get, they tell you that's what you're dealing with. All of a sudden you're reeling. Oh man, not only do I have this terrible challenge in front of me, but I might not make it. Or, or maybe it's not even as serious as that. Maybe it's that more day-to-day -day tedium. You know how the world sometimes just dumps on us and we think we can't take any more? Here comes somebody with another load and dumps on us? It gets to the point not only where we wonder if we can handle it, but we wonder if it's even worth it. And of course, we're always reminded of God's action and reaction whenever we lose somebody we love. God told Adam, you go your own way, you rebel, you break the laws that I've created. It will have this one reaction. I don't want it for you, but it's how it works. Death. We all have to deal with that reaction to our parents rebelling and to us sinning. So what is the way to deal with these doubts, these, these fears? Well, Paul succinctly says, was raised to life 
for our justification. And, and I'm not sure, and that's one of the beauties of the Lenten season and our study on justification. Every seven days we have this, this breath of fresh air. We have this oasis, this spiritual oasis, where these days aren't counted in the passion of our Lord. They're counted as part of the celebration. That's why you sang an Easter hymn this morning. And that's why every seven days we get to celebrate not only what Christ did on the cross, but what God the Father does for us through this one action. In the same way He handed His Son over for death, Paul tells us that He raised Christ back to life for our justification. A very specific reason. It's like the receipt that you get when you finally pay off a debt. It's your proof. It's your evidence. So somebody comes back to you and says, hey, you owe me some more money. You whip that sucker out and go, no, I don't. You marked it paid in full. You cannot go back on that. This is my proof. I dare you. We're done. This is all even. Score is settled. I don't think we always appreciate Easter being that in our daily lives as we are under spiritual attack, as the devil does try to convince us we're not lovable, as our own inner voice tries to tell us you're such a sinner. Paul says, look at the resurrection. That's basically the meaning of justification. The resurrection gives us that definition. When it comes to God, you're not guilty. He only sees the perfection. The sin is gone. In fact, the more I dig into this, the more I tend to lead away from that definition of not guilty to an equal but opposite term, if you will. Well, it's not really opposite. It's it's a coordinating term of acquittal. I like the term acquitted because it has in there the word quit. And it reminds me of what happens at the end of a case where the prosecution has been unable to make their claim against you. You're done. Case closed. You quit. It's over. And one of the beautiful things is, at least in my mind, it leads me into our own understanding of the legal system. Once you've been acquitted of a crime, once they have failed to prove their case, once it has been shown that there is no evidence against you to convict you, they can't ever bring that up again. It's what we call double jeopardy. You can't be tried for the same time twice if you've been acquitted. It works the same way in God's court. Our defense team is Jesus Christ. The equalization for any crime committed is his blood. It was given at the cross. But the resurrection is that declaration by the good judge who says, you're not guilty of these crimes. There's nothing here. And yet there's still this roadblock. To these sweet and simple truths of our loving God, there is the reaction of the sinful human nature that doesn't want to believe. See if this doesn't sound familiar to you. Um, Most of your life you've been taught if something's too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. And in this day and age, it's even worse. Um, The scam phone calls, uh, the phishing emails. We are taught to be so untrusting, and rightly so. You know, the latest diet fad or that miracle cure for baldness, how many times have people tried this stuff and it just doesn't work? And so... We become cynical and, and doubting. And, and there's goodness to that when it comes to the evil world. But when it comes to God, there's no place. There's no room for that lack of trust. So what happens is that God offers up to, these, to us these equal and opposite reactions. And we have within us this sinful nature that, that just wants to fight against it. And, and besides our own nature, we have a chorus of voices in the world around us 
claiming us. There, there's no reasonable person who would trust this unseen God, especially if he makes it that easy. And so we end up beating ourselves up. I don't know if you've ever gone through that, where you've committed a sin. Maybe it's a big one, maybe it's a little one. Who knows? Who cares? You know it's forgiven. You've heard the pastor pronounce in church, I forgive you of all of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I, I can't forgive your sins. God does. And he does it through the office of the ministry. If that's not enough, you've got the baptism sacrament that says anything you've done wrong, I've washed you clean. That isn't just what you're born with. It's everything you will ever do. And God says, I know how your heart works, so I'm going to give you this too. The very proof and evidence of the payment I am going to put in your hands. You will taste. You will touch. Because I know you're doubters. And so I'm going to give you these things to fight that doubt. You might think, well, at this point, I, I, I should be convinced. But then the world joins in and goes, no, it doesn't work that way. It, it isn't who God's made you, who God created you to be. It, it's what you do, how much you accomplish, what's your salary, how hard have you worked, how many kids. It has all these measuring sticks that no human being can measure up to. And, and so this second roadblock not only undermines our faith, but let's be honest, it, it actually insults God. Because we keep trying to drag these sins with us when they've long ago been forgiven covered in the blood of Christ. And if we doubt it, all we have to do is go back to Easter morning and say, here's, here's your receipt. God says as far as your account goes, we're clean. We're even. It's all taken care of. Tab is paid. You owe me nothing. You are perfect. Because my son paid for those sins. He perfectly paid for those sins. Because I'm as much like you are and I know what I'm going to have to face for the next seven days until we get our next mini Easter. I've done something a little bit different. Normally I package slide full of word meanings and grammar. This text didn't really require it. It's pretty straightforward, pretty simple words. But there is one word I reserved for the end here. I want you to understand how Paul uses it. There's a lot of words in the Greek language for sin. Uh, from something as simple as we might think God doesn't even notice it, like stepping over the line a little bit, we call it a trespass. Uh, to the other end of the spectrum where we completely blow it, uh, hamartia, you missed the mark. You're just, you're just not even on the same page with God. And there's a, a number of different words in between that kind of describes variations of sin, of what the reaction to God's beautiful creation has been when our parents rebelled. It's this word, paraptuma. And what it does is it covers the whole spectrum of sin. That's the one the Holy Spirit had got, uh, Paul used to describe our justification, our being right with God, our being not guilty, our being acquitted. There is no sin that you could commit or have committed that God has not taken care of both at the cross and at the empty tomb of our Savior. That is God's loving action. And now in this message to the Romans, Paul is looking for a reaction. Don't just believe these things. This is the way that God wants you to live. And if God had Paul say it to the Romans, then God has Paul saying it to us as well. You're not only forgiven, you're free. So now go live that way. Hey, cat.
Jesus. Oh, it's been a long time. Yeah, um, I didn't expect to see you here. Whoa, uh, what's that smell? That smell? Oh, um, well, that's my trash. I just, I'm a little embarrassed about it. Oh, well, is that why you've been avoiding me? Avoiding you? I, I, I haven't really been avoiding you. I just, you know, I don't, I don't want to get close to you. I mean, I, I just, I don't want you to smell it. I'll take it, Kat. Come oh, on. Oh, no, 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 no. That's okay. I mean, I made it. It's my trash. You know, I should carry it. It's, it's, it's okay. Yeah, but Kat, I mean, this is my job. Right. I take people's trash. That's what I do, so. Right. Okay. Well, maybe I could go and just clean it up a little bit, you know, and then I'll just, I'll come back. No, Kat, I don't need you to do that. Um. Okay. I'll take it from you so you don't have to carry the weight. Oh, well, I. Come on. Uh, uh, just, just hand it over. Uh, all, right? all right. Let go. Let go. Yes, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, How's that feel? Weird. Wow. That is crazy. Yeah, just loosen it up a Whoa, little bit. Oh, check that out. I don't know if I've ever moved like that before. Well, I mean, that is crazy. I just, I feel so free and alive. I, it's I mean, the lack of trash. Wow, I mean, it's just like, this is the craziest feeling I have ever had. I just, it's like something's missing, you know? Well, I, I just, Get um, used I, to feeling free, because that's yeah, what you are now. Right, okay. Uh, what okay. are you doing? I just, I gotta get one thing, okay? Hold on just a minute. Get here. one thing? No, 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 don't open the bag! Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice. I really appreciate all that you've done for me. What's going on here, Kat? What? Look, I'll take the trash, but you need to put that back. Oh, um, no, actually, um, that's okay. This is mine. It's my piece. I want to keep it. No, it goes right back in the bag, so I'll help you. Here, no, 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 put no, no. it here. No, Jesus, I, I need to remind myself not to make more trash. I mean, that just Kathleen, makes sense. I will remind you not to make more trash. Oh, okay? well, Jesus, you know... That's what I do. I mean, we'll walk together. I know, but I should be in a better place than this by now. I mean, I just... I'm constantly doing things wrong, you know, and I, I'm just, I'm constantly letting you down. No, the only thing that's letting me down is, is, is you taking the stuff back. Okay. Look, I took care of the trash before you even created it. <gasps> Look, don't you see what's happening? Every time I take your trash away, you come back and, and take another piece. And the more pieces you carry around, the more trash you attract. It reeks. Cat. When I look at you, I don't see your sin. I see you, the real you, the free you. This is what I'm fighting for. This is what I died for. Jesus, I'm sorry. I just, please forgive me. I've already forgiven you. The question is, will you forgive yourself? <laughs>